Every single person in Formula One is under pressure. Team principals, designers, engineers, and perhaps most of all, the drivers. They're under pressure to get the most out of every race, to finish ahead of their teammate and at the top teams to win races. In recent seasons, few drivers have felt those pressures, like Alex Albon. One of the races, I was getting like bashed in the, in in. They're like, oh, where's your performance? Where's your lap time? And I was like, hold on a minute, it wasn't even that bad. Everyone chill out a bit. In 2020, Alex drove for Red Bull. The pressure from the media and from the team was huge. And in many ways, he had a great season, scoring regular points and taking his first Formula One podiums. But Red Bull wanted more. And at the end of the year, they took the tough decision. Sergio Perez got his chance alongside Max Verstappen. Alex lost his race seat and spent 2021 on the sidelines. He remained a big part of the team. He contributed to their championship winning season, but he wasn't racing. It killed me, it <laughs> killed me. The hunger never went and the hunger just got more and more. The more that I sat watching everyone driving, the more I wanted to be back in it. On F1 Beyond the Grid, with me, Tom Clarkson, you'll hear how that hunger took Alex Albon back into Formula One with Williams. I wanted to prove a point and I wanted to be able to come into the year and show people, oh, well, hang on a minute, he's actually not, not that bad. What made Alex want to prove a point? How did he keep going during a tough year on the sidelines? How has he changed since his Red Bull days? Why does Williams excite him? What really happens when he, Lando Norris, Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc hit the golf course? And why did a trip to an orphanage in Thailand leave him with bleached red hair? Alex answers all of those questions and many more, honestly, fully and humbly. We sat down just after his amazing drive to 10th place at the Australian Grand Prix, where he ran a whopping 57 laps, that's almost an entire race distance, on the same set of tyres. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, hello, Mr. Tire Whisperer. Oh, God. Uh, we know when I heard that, to begin with, I, I hope people didn't watch my Jeddah race. Because on the first stint, I was asking to change tyres after five laps. Because <laughs> my, my mediums were destroyed. I was trying to race Lewis for the first three laps of the race. And I thought, I'm doing a good job here. And then my tyres went away. No, well, you're definitely the tyre whisperer after Melbourne. After, after Melbourne, that, yes. What was it? And it was an audacious, almost zero stop strategy wasn't it to it was tenth place. it was amazing it was um it feels a bit strange at the time it didn't feel you know when when, when you're in it, it you don't really think about it you just think well we got a point that's great but when you think when we when i look back at it i think that's crazy you know i think it was they said over 10 years since anyone's 12 12, 12 years 12 since we've years. seen a strategy like that yeah and there you go and yeah it it, it was fine i was actually improving on my inlap i was three or four tenths up on my best lap previous as I boxed so um which was the three or four tenths needed to stay in front of a zoo but um we were just going faster and faster H how how is that possible when everyone else was struggling yeah <laughs> you've just come out of your engineering briefing how did you explain it uh, yeah it's a weird one because no one truthfully at this minute understands the tires I don't you if you look at um qualifying for instance no one's doing the same strategy through the grid there's not one car copying another car and even between drivers teammates it's all different and um it's the same in the race you know some type people grain some people don't 
we we did 56 odd laps on one set of tires and um it felt fine <laughs> and so it, it's it's kind of confusing but at the same time i think on that tire that c2 tire we we're really good at it and every time i put that tire on it feels great and uh, i think there was a little bit of opportunity there because we had a three-place grid penalty so we knew going into the race let's just spend all of qualifying setting the car up for for the race we did and uh we missed we avoided the graining which was the most important thing and uh yeah we were we were we were, we were on fire it was, it was quite cool to be able to keep up with the mclarens and by the end of the last stint we were pulling away from the from esteban and so uh it's awesome yeah. I, i've got a theory Please, let's hear it. <laughs> I think it's the hair. The hair, yes. Now, I just need My to explain. My superstitious <laughs> self says the same. <laughs> so just for people who aren't aware, on the way to Melbourne, Alex had his hair coloured red, and it's looking yes. really red under the artificial light here it in is. the Williams motorhome. Um, there's a story there, isn't there? There is a story. I went, to, um, I went to Thailand before Melbourne. Similar situation as most of Asia slash Australia they've been a pretty heavy lockdown for two, three years. And I haven't been there since 2019. So it was a good chance to see my family, but also um, I guess I've got bigger over in Thailand and I wanted to use my, uh, what do you call it, following as a, to do some good. So I, I, I w uh, went to an orphanage and uh, the kids were, it's 2,500 kids in this orphanage, a massive orphanage. They have their own school. It's a whole village dedicated to orphans. It's, it's incredible. And um, they're doing an amazing job there. And when two of the kids showed me around, they had some, some really tough stories. Um, but they're massive fans of Liverpool. And if people don't Liverpool know... Football Liverpool Club. Football Club. Uh, Thailand, there's a, a massive following for the Premier League. And you're either a Liverpool fan a Man United fan, a Chelsea fan, or an Arsenal fan. But I would say, generally speaking, you're either Man United or Liverpool. And um, and obviously red. And all the kids, we, we played football, red shirts, they had red hair. And um, they wanted to dye my hair. <laughs> so uh, off we went. We were in the temple. So, so, to explain a bit more, There's a, the, the orphanage is run by monks, and um, as well as Jost's brother. So there's a bit of a, a whole thing towards that. But and that's Jos Capito, the Capito, team principal here at Williams. Okay. His brother lives in Thailand and is one of the biggest sponsors for the orphanage. And so in, the monk was there, um, a very highly respected monk. And we were sitting in one of the chairs he gave, he gave me. And um, <laughs> I had a stray cat in my hand and I had the kids dyeing my hair. Um, and yeah, that, that's pretty much the story. I wanted blonde because the other, some kids had blonde, some kids had red, but they ran out of blonde. <laughs> that's what they told you. That's what they told me. <laughs> and they even ran out of red hair, but the local village across the street was still selling the red dye. So they went and grabbed the red dye. And I'm t this, this dye costs 30 baht, which is like, um, oh, <laughs> it's like 50, 60p, more or less. 60 cents for, for anyone else listening. And... Um, when they put it on my hair, I was like, I just hope I wake up and my hair hasn't fallen out. <laughs> but it's still on, just about. Hey, it's looking great. Uh, uh, yeah. Actually, an interesting thing about that orphanage, isn't the charity, it's got, isn't it something, is it called the Iceman Charity? Is Kimi Raikkonen somehow involved so, as well? So Jos' brother, Volker, is called 
uh, he's called, known as the Iceman in the orphanage, just not coincidentally, um, because um, every time he goes, he brings ice cream for the children. That's 2,500 Cornettos. That's a lot of Cornettos. And uh, the kids call him Iceman because they know every time he comes, he brings ice cream. Not for Kimi Raikkonen. I wish it was. <laughs> I, I wish all the kids were massive <laughs> Kimi Raikkonen fans. Well, look, it's a great story. And keep it red. I think that's... Keep it red. That's, that's the only way... Keep, red is a lucky colour in Asia. Keep red. That's the moral of this story, isn't it? It is. It is, it is very patchy. And so I might need to get it re-dyed in a proper salon. Just to, I mean, the kids are great, and I'm sure they have great futures in being, being a being a hairdresser. But ah, um, maybe Charles Leclerc's mum, she's a hairdresser. She's a hairdresser. Keep it within the family, the Formula <laughs> One family. Now, look, yeah. can we just talk one more thing about this points finish in Melbourne? Is you've scored 198 World Championship points in your Formula One career? What did that single point in Melbourne mean to you? <laughs> yeah, I would say. Um, it truly did feel like a win. Yes, boys! Yes! Woo! Oh, lovely job. That was a mega stint. Alex, awesome race. Awesome race. You got the point. Congratulations. Awesome. Yes, guys. Amazing. The car was unbelievable. It felt just as big as any other point that I've scored. And um, I haven't scored a win, unfortunately, but I've scored podiums and it, it felt um, equal to that. It's quite um what's the word it's it's quite impactful as a driver to see the team respond so um enthusiastically to the point because it, of course we haven't had the best start to the year and honestly um you know we, we're not where we want to be so it's hard you know it's, it's oh let's say it's easy to get um caught up in that and you know it's it's not it's not great but uh but to be able to give that point back to the guys and girls and to see um, what it meant to everyone. Of course, it meant a lot to me, but it meant a lot to me also because it meant a lot to them, if that makes sense. And um, to see everyone so enthusiastic, it felt amazing to be able to be that contribution t to them. And do you think to keep scoring points, you're going to have to do things differently going forward as well? Ideally, of course, we don't want to be... I mean. We don't want to be doing one stops, you know, 57, 58 lap races every time and trying to um, find that. But at the minute, I know what you mean. Yes, you know, we, we don't have the pure outright pace, so we need to be different. And I think um, all credit to the to the guys from strategy to Yost to everyone. I think we went into that race and the first thing we said is if we do what everyone else does, we're not going to score anything. And um, we don't have the pace on paper to to be in the top 10 but let's try to let's try and make something happen and um and we did and it and it worked and that's kind of the beauty of f1 i feel like anything can happen and these tires we're so new into the championship no one's really got to grips with it there's opportunity there and and you know there's a few dnfs going around as well people aren't are struggling with reliability S saying that of course we don't want to stay in this place the whole time and um the positive thing for us is that we know why we're struggling it's not like you know we're, we're, we're sitting there and going everything feels good but we're not fast it we have clear limitations we need to address them and once we do address them I feel like um, maybe we'll do a one-stop strategy and end up in the top five <laughs> 
Do, do you believe in the potential of the FW44? Is, is there a light at the end of the tunnel, just while we're talking about developments and pace? There is. There, there is um, this clear directions to go. And I 100% believe if we fix them, we'll be up there, you know, fighting for points. It's more or less about efficiency, choosing the right upgrades at the right time and making sure we're doing the right steps to, to achieve that because it's, it's, it's easy to, th to, you know, see a lot of issues at once and then go, we need to make everything better. But realistically speaking, we just need to choose the biggest problems and, and focus on them. And especially with the budget cap that's come in, it, you have to be very selective about what you upgrade. So um, that's the plan right now. But yes, I, I, I do believe so. And as the team leader... Alex Albon, because I feel that's what you are now. Do you feel the team is relying on you to direct where they put those upgrades? Yes, to some extent. You know, I, I rely on them as well. So we're, we're, we're a true team in that. And um, you know, we've been on the sim last week, for this, even this week, actually, um, making sure we get the right, up, the right direction. And um, it's quite it's an exciting time. It's, it's really enjoyable to be a part of a team where clearly there you know everyone's ears are open and we're all trying to f the best for the team and we're exploring we're looking at different avenues to go down um and that's it really yeah i i, I quite enjoy it it's a kind of a new role for me because I'm, I'm not i'm not the most outspoken person but i i do feel like um i've had that year in between where i've been able to um develop not just as a driver but as a person and I feel more mature I feel like I can be that team leader and trying to put that into into use and be a part of that development is it's exciting are you reading my mind because I was going to say to you I was going to say um, well you do have a piece of paper in front of you <laughs> no, but I haven't been reading it but how did your year away from racing in Formula One in 2021 change your perspective on the sport Yes. Um, perspective, I would say not too much, but what I did learn is experience and I would say general maturity in, in that way because I felt like in terms of driving, I couldn't improve myself because I wasn't actually driving the car. Uh, it's quite a tricky situation to be in, but you're you're not driving a Formula 1 car in that year away. I'm driving the simulator, which is only so good, but a simulator has a restart button. And it doesn't have quite the motion that you do on, you know, in, in a real car. So I turned my attention more towards, um, well, very simply, I want to be a, be a better driver. That's that's the, the main aim. And how do you do that without driving the car? That's that's a tricky position. So my, my focus was more like, how can I develop myself? What do I need to improve? How can I work with the team and, and understand not just driving because driving is a very kind of natural thing for us but it's it's also building the the foundations of how how you communicate with you know the aero guys with the vehicle dynamic guys with the engineers with everyone else in the team and how does that help get the performance and just understanding also even just the simple politics of of everything and how everything works was was really beneficial for me this year i think it's actually something that was probably the general media public look over is they'll look over two drivers and they'll look over the performance between teammates. But what they don't see is 
a driver's value in developing a car. For instance, I'm sure someone like Lewis is unbelievable at feedback and pushing development and pushing the team in the right way. There's no reason not to believe that if you're up at the front for that long, you're very good as a driver to make sure the team are focusing on the right areas to improve and um, develop the car. And that's a part which I don't think people, people may, may gloss well, over. Do you think we're seeing that at Ferrari this year in that Charles Leclerc is stealing the headlines, he's winning the races, getting the pole positions, and yet Carlos Sainz may well be really helping develop? It can very, very well be that. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a bit which maybe, I mean, that's a hypothesis, yeah. but it, it's a very valid point and um, it, it's a big contribution to a driver's value within a team. And, and do you think all that work on the Red Bull simulator last year has helped you now? I mean, with your tyre whispering, for example. There are definite parts to it. I think what was also important was just listening to you know Max Checo and I would always speak to their engineers and ask them, well, you know, what would what you see that Checo does or Max does that works for tire management or things like that. And I would look at the data. I have the data. I can access it, you know, whenever I wanted to. So and I would take bits from it. And uh, and also just as people, you know, their personalities, how how did how did they how do they interact with the team and how do they how do they work? I mean, it's, I mean we're all our we're all our own selves and, and we all have different ways of working, but it was quite interesting to have that step back away from from the from the from the spotlight and from from the paddock in, in that way and look at things from a different perspective. Sergio Perez moved teams over the winter, went to Red Bull in his sixth race for his new team. Sergio Perez wins the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. How tough was it for you last year? Because you'd, you'd race for Red Bull Racing for 18 months. Yeah. Okay, then you have to take a step back and you're having to listen to, to Max and Checo in particular. Oh, it killed me. It, it <laughs> killed me. It was terrible. It was um, it was one of them things. I got announced, you know, that I, wasn't, I was no longer going to be a, uh, a race driver pretty late. I think it was maybe December. Absolutely. So. They, they held until after the last race after of 2020. After the last race, exactly. And I, that was late for, for, for me too, obviously. But, um, you know, they still believed in me and they still trusted in me Christian Helmut um, everyone at Red Bull and I and I still have a very good relationship with all of them the people that I worked with and on my side it was more or less like okay so how do I I want to be an F1 I feel like I'm one of the most I'm the hungriest driver I know because I want to be in that sport more than anyone how can I get back into it and very quickly it was just okay I need to do the best job I can right now straight away and show my value it, almost in the sense that, that I was just talking about I'm not driving the car but I need to show my value in everything outside of the driving side I mean the sim is driving so there's still that but yeah that that was really it and um, I went straight to work and I was I was developing the car already in December for for the guys uh, for the year after and so when we went into 2021 you know, we, we, we did knock out a few things and we, we focused on some areas that made the 2020 car so difficult to drive. And then it came to Bahrain winter testing, the, th the first three days of testing. And I don't know if you remember, but the car was quick out the blocks. And uh, just listening to, I had the radio on and I was listening to Max and Checo. I was there at the time and 
obviously Checo was new, but Max drove the car last year and he was talking about how, how much better the rear felt, how much more stable it was. And you're just like, ah, you know, it, it, it does hurt a little bit because you're at the same point, you're like, okay, that's great. You know, I've, I've, I feel like I've contributed to that. And all the right people within the Red Bull organization knew that it was you? Well, yeah, I mean, to be fair, you know, people like Adrian and Christian, they gave me a lot of credit for it. I don't want to say I helped in a, in a, in a massive amount, but of course I felt like I chipped in to, to, the, to the whole thing. And, um, and it, was, it was one of them things, and, and I was watching on the sidelines for the whole year. The first few races were oh, it just, it was terrible. I, I, I was a reserve driver, so I had to go to every race, but just being there, I couldn't watch or, or anything. I was just pretty much just sitting down and yeah, trying to stay away from it as much as I could. But you kind of get used to it. You, you build the... You, How do you fill you, your time you, as a reserve driver when you're not driving? When I'm not driving, it, I mean, I was spending... I was spending three, four days a week in the simulator. Um, I think in from Monaco, I, I spent Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday in the sim, and then I flew out on Saturday to the to the race. So we, I was busier than I ever was, and I was doing DTM at the time too. So um, I was busier last year than I was this year and and 2020 when I was actually driving. It was it was it was really full on, but all worth it. Obviously. And enjoyable. Enjoyable. In any way. It was enjoyable because I felt like, obviously, the more I got used to the fact that I wasn't racing, the more I felt I'm becoming a team team player in all this. And, and of course, I guess my heart still laid it towards Red Bull and I still wanted Max to win the championship. So um, there was that element of I'm, I'm helping the team try and win this thing. And uh, I enjoyed that side of it. And uh, of course, when, when Max did win, of course, it was controversial, but it still felt good to me. I still felt very happy for Max, for, for the team. And I, I felt like I was a part of it, which was kind of what it was all for in the end. Did you ever lose faith that you'd get back into F1 as a race driver? Um, the hunger never went and the hunger just got more and more. The more that I sat watching everyone driving, um, the more... I wanted to be back in it but of course there comes a time when you just don't know what's going on and I think there was a point where you know Checo didn't have to didn't have an easy time of it especially at the start of the season and there was also even Yuki you know because I, I turned into a driver coach I know I was going to ask you about that later but, <laughs> <Yeah>. but so <laughs> you're thinking there, there I was could always do, there was mm. always I was like oh you know there's always I can do that yeah, yeah I was like you know there's always possibilities you know keep doing what you're doing but of course, Checo was 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 doing a great job by 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 kind of that mid to end side, and I was like, okay, well, that's that's a closed door. Yuki was also <laughs> picking it up, um, and he signed quite early as well, you know, for 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 next year. So I was in a position where I was like, well, my chances within the Red Bull family are, are kind of they're not really there anymore, and um, and of course it hurts, but it never stopped me from trying and. Um, I had a plan. I had it all written down. You know what what I wanted to be doing. Um, of course, plan A was F one, and there was a few. There was teams and on that list, but um, of course, one of them was Williams. Um, but then there was the inevitable plan B, plan C, plan D, whatever it may be. And um, I mean, I went to a few. I was looking at IndyCar actually, as a, as a, as an enjoyment because I I came out of DTM and I was like, you know, I enjoyed the series. 
I enjoyed the people within it. I, I loved working with my team. It was AF Corsa at the time. But I was like, I don't enjoy this the GT racing. I don't enjoy the ABS, the traction control, all that kind of stuff. I want to drive something that I enjoy to drive. And so I was looking at IndyCar as my main plan. And there was Formula E, of course. And as time went on during the year, it looked more and more like that was the, the direction I was heading. And so I couldn't, I, I couldn't be silly and, and put all my eggs in plan A and then not have a backup plan. So I was still scouting. I was still, you know, asking Did questions. you go to an IndyCar race? Yeah, I went and I spoke to all the teams and I, and I made sure that I um, had my face shown and, um, you know, had good conversations with, with teams. Um, but of course, my heart was always in F1. And uh, I think... Uh, I think it was Red Bull Ring, where I had a chat with Jos for the first time. Um, Can I ask who approached who, or is that? No, that's fine. Um, that I approached him. I gave him like a like a CV. You know, this is this is what, not a PowerPoint. Not a PowerPoint. <laughs> Didn't follow George's one. Uh, paper's fine. <laughs> but I basically said, listen, this is this is what I can do. I put some statistics that go in my favour, <laughs> of course, as you should. And, um, How receptive was Jos when you first approached him? He was great. I've always, from the very beginning, he was very interested. And but um, they knew at that point that they were losing George, did they? I think it was it was in that period, right? I don't really know too much, but but yes, I, I think it was around that period. And um, and then we just had started that conversation, and and we spoke more and more. And there was a point where you know it was George was definitely confirmed. And or even if it wasn't announced, it was clearly on the way through. And uh, and yeah, the, it, it was all it went pretty seamlessly from that point on. And, and within like two weeks, the conversation in in a two week span, the conversations just ramped up very quickly. And then by the end of the two weeks, it was all pretty much done. How exciting is that when you're living that? You know, you've been on the emotional roller coaster. End of. 2020 you get yes. the bad phone call from from helmet i guess <laughs> saying it's not happening and then suddenly it's ramping up again and yeah well that's the thing is you know i still relied on christian and and helmet to help me out in in crossing the line because um i was still in contract with with them and it was you know this whole okay we've got a there's a lot of things that need to be moved around a lot of paperwork needs to be done and so they were very happy for me and everything just all clicked together and it all gelled up and the puzzles all connected and there we were and and um and i was pretty yeah i was it, it was one of them things where i was just like oh, it it's so much effort's gone into it and there was like that kind of uh what do you call it it's that that calmness that okay we're in it but then within <laughs> within an hour your mind's going okay <laughs> Yeah, it's that Formula 1 thing, isn't it? It's we the competitor in you, it isn't is. it? And it's like, right, how do I need to prepare? Okay, I need to start speaking to the team. I need to understand, speak to George, speak to Nicky and understand it from that side and start going into meetings and understanding the car and, and the people within the team. And, and then that's it. You know, your mind's gone and, and you're, you're back into it. Right, controversial question. What's the difference between the Mercedes power unit and the Honda? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> they feel I'm that I close my eyes and they feel the same <laughs> what was Williams's biggest selling point to you they they didn't need much to be honest they could have given me anything and oh god yes please thank you very much um no when I first went into the team I could see firstly that Jos was 
was very passionate, very motivated, and he, I could see there's, he has a confidence of this, I don't know, it's a mixture of confidence and ambition that is kind of um, addicting. And, um, you know, you feel like you can just trust what he says. And he's got that much passion in what he does. You think, he, you know, that will push him a long way into the future. And, and I spoke with the board members too, um, within Williams, and, and everyone seems like they're very, firstly that, you know, they really were excited, genuinely wanted me to be in the team. And everything was about the future. And, you know, they're not looking just next year, next year. It's it's, it's five, six, seven years in, in front. And with Doralton as well, that, you know, it's, it's our our main, um, well, it's the people that own own Williams. There was this real feeling like we, we, we can do great things. And, um, and that was it. it. It was as simple as that. And what's your ambition, that they build a team around you and that you go on and achieve great things together? Well, that's, that's the dream scenario. That's the dream, yeah. um, but yes, exactly that. It's, it is a long-term project. And, you know, Are you on a bungee back to, to Red Bull? It's complicated. and uh, you know, you, No one wants to know the ins and outs. I'm, I know you guys do, but it's better I don't say anything. But, um, but there is a bit of you know, stuff moving around. But uh, what I can say is you know, this year I am... A, completely a Williams driver and that's what I see I see um, just as I saw last year the best thing I can do for myself is to do the utmost and um, I generally believe it I do believe in this team and I I see a great future for the team and I want to be a part of that having taken this year out and come back racing I feel I'm sitting opposite a more relaxed Alex is that fair I think that's fair. Yes. I mean, is that the maturity that you were referring to earlier, or, or is it? It is a bit, and I and I realised, you know, I was very stressed in 2020, and I. It's very simple, but it's like, why stress? You know, what's the point of working yourself up over over nothing? Because it is a stressful business. This, and you kind of look back. I look back at 2020, and I thought to myself, you know, did you really enjoy it? <laughs> and what did you conclude? It was like. Of course, I enjoy racing. I enjoy driving, but everything that came with it and kind of, you know, just the—it's really the pressure I put myself under more than anything else. I'm my biggest critic. It was, um, it was stressful, and and you know, I I realised you got to let that that side of you go. We're all competitive, and we all want to win, and we all um, we're all under pressure to some extent. Uh, well, we we are <laughs> for sure. I can tell you, we are. But I feel like I've already been I've already been sacked, <laughs> and and in a, in a way, in a way I feel like I, f- I feel in a peace in in a way, and I, and I feel like um, I feel I'm in a good place. You know, I'm I'm happy. I'm enjoying my racing, and that's that's it sounds a very basic thing, but it's one of the most important things t- to be doing as a racing driver is to making sure that you're actually enjoying it. And are you a better racing driver if you're enjoying it? For sure, yeah. I think, you know, when you feel like your back's against the wall, that's never, that's never good in, in that sense. thing is, clearly you responded to the pressure that you put yourself under because you did 26 races for Red Bull Racing. You scored points in 20 of them, including a couple of podiums. That's, yes. And that's, that's a very decent strike rate. I, I think um, it, gets, it gets a bad rep. 
2020, but it's nowhere near as bad as... I, I didn't see it as a terrible year. You know, I, I was inexperienced. I was in my second year in F1. You look at most people in the top teams, they've had at least five or six years worth of racing. Even from what I know this year to what I knew at Red Bull, as a driver, as a person, I myself know right now I, w- I would be way on top of what I was in 2020 just because I know so much more now. And it happens, you know, and I don't regret it. And I feel like we still got podiums on a tricky car to drive. It was a good learning process. I feel like I've learned, you know, I've, I kind of went through the trenches and uh, and it still had, we still had good results. And um, yeah, it's, it's one of them things like, uh, I think coming back to this year, it was also, I knew that it wasn't that bad and I wanted to prove a point and I wanted to be able to come into the year and show people, oh, well, hang on a minute. It's, he's actually not not that bad, and uh, I feel that at least for the moment. <laughs> I hope to think <laughs> that's going in that direction. Alex, I think there were two pivotal moments when you were at Red Bull, which, had they not ended as they did, I think could have changed. For example, Helmut Marco's view on you long term, and they both involve Lewis Hamilton. Albon has Hamilton troubles here as he turns in. Oh, and Lewis Hamilton makes contact with Alex Albon. His first podium in Formula One is sent spinning and drifting away in the infield and into Lagos. Albon is all over the back of Hamilton who once again forces in the long way round. And Albon again, no, with Lewis Hamilton. He's lost out once more as it was in Brazil. He comes off second best. The cars touch and the podium that looks a certainty has been wiped out in a matter of seconds. Brazil 2019, uh, while you were lying second. Austria 2020, while you were third. You and Lewis yeah. made contact. The podiums didn't happen. Mm. Then, of course, there's the lack of momentum and things like that. Do you look back on those two moments as pivotal in any uh, way? No. I don't. You know, of course, if I had better results, it would have put things in a completely different mindset. And, and yes, I think um, I do remember my first race or second race in, in Austria. One of the races, um, I was getting like bashed in the, in, in the like, oh, where's your performance? Where's your lap time? And I was like, hold on a minute. It wasn't even that bad. Everyone chill out a bit. And I think a result like that would have quietened it all down. And I would have had the next few few races what, six, seven races, kind of with a bit less of that noise. Because the noise started from the very first race of the year, it was there. And it, it was quite intense, that kind of, you know, um, what's going, you know, it's that kind of what's going wrong, what's going wrong, what's going wrong. And uh, and for sure it would have helped, but I never, ever would blame Lewis for any of my kind of, what do you call it, my my, what's happened to me. In, in that sense, it's 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 all on me. Um, he did. I remember he apologised publicly after Brazil, didn't he? He did. He's, he was on my plane, actually, um, on the way back. Did you chat? We didn't chat. He <laughs> Thanks, in, mate. He was in first. I was in, <laughs> okay, right. I was in business. <laughs> I was looking for the promotion up to the top, but I didn't get it. They actually brought up Carlos. Carlos was sitting next to me, and they were like, Carlos, you can come up to first. And I was like, Anyway, well, of course, <laughs> hang on. Uh, Carlos had just finished on the podium in Carlos that race. Carlos did, so yeah. maybe. And I was like, guys. So if you, if, if Lewis hadn't turfed you off, and you'd been, been on the podium, class, you'd been. Then a first. I would have been better rested for the next race. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a domino effect. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's one of them things, and he he apologized, and 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 honestly, it's, you know, I, I still look at that them, especially the Brazil one. I look at it as like a, you know, I could still have done my part in avoiding a crash in some places as well. Like I, I always look at crashes between drivers and always think it's never one hundred zero. There's always a little bit of you know give and take in in in, in most of these incidents. Um, the Austria one, though, I do think is his fault. <laughs> <laughs> For the record. For the record. <laughs> it also raises the question, your time at Red Bull, of how tough it is to be alongside Max Verstappen. Just talk to me about his driving. When you look at the data, what is Max Verstappen particularly good at? I'd say that um, it's, a, it's a weird comparison to make. But if anyone watches MotoGP, um, think of someone like Mark Marquez. He has a, a very specific driving style and it works for him and it's quick, but it's not always the easiest to follow. And um, partly, of course, if, if, if that guy is always doing well, there's no reason for the team to ever deviate to something else. I think part of that was when you look at the data, there's nothing that goes, wow, you know, this and this and this is... He's incredible. Of course, he's on the limit, and he likes a car that's very much on the on the nose. And I think that's that's a pretty well known thing. He likes a lot of front. He cannot feel great as you know, as a as a teammate. And I think um, I think even Checo found that out. You know, in 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 last year. And I feel like even this year, it's kind of most probably a new car, new regs has kind of rebalanced everything a little bit more. And I think Checo's doing a great job, kind of uh, up against him, but. He's obviously super talented and likes a car in a certain way and, and it's hard for others to follow. Is he political? No, he's not, not at all. He's straightforward off, off track. Very straightforward. One of the most straightforward, actually. Uh, he has a lot of self-confidence, self-belief, which you would do if you won a world championship, but, it, but it, of course, even before then. And he's in a position where he doesn't need, he doesn't need to be political, I think, truthfully speaking, because he, he, he can just do the talking on the circuit, so... People see him as maybe arrogant. I don't think he is at all. I think he's just very, he's very determined, very hungry, um, sure of himself. But he's not arrogant, and he, like I said before, he can uh, just simply um, do the talking on the track. Really, if I were one of your teammates yes. and I'm looking at your data, mm -hmm. what are you particularly strong at? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I, don't know I mean, if Max likes a strong front end, what does Alex Albon like? Oh, what do I like? You can tell Al me it's the opposite, which is... <laughs> a weak rear, a weak front. Um, no, there's nothing particular, I would say. And I would say, you know, before I even drove with Max, I, I always loved front end grip. I always had way more front than anyone else I used to race against. And that was from go-karts, even through... Even you know in GP3 when I was with Charles and 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 De Vries and all them, like, I still I still like front, still like front. And it's the same here at Williams. I still like front. So it's just that Max was almost another step in a, in a different in a different section of he liked he liked a whole different world of front. Um, so I would say I must. It sounds weird, but I like the car on the nose, <laughs> even if even if it doesn't sound uh, like I did. In 2020. And you've always been a fantastic overtaker. Where do you learn that? Or is it, or is it something that you don't learn? It's just... Uh, you're born with it. Uh, that judgment. I'm trying to think. I So, as kids, even when I was like seven, eight years old, uh, you would always go testing. And 
you know, back in back in 2000 and back in the old days, back in the olden days, <laughs> uh, back in 2004, <laughs> when it was all black and white, um, there would be massive grids, you know, 120 cadets, eight to 12 years old, would all be, be, be racing against each other. And my dad used to, well, I, I used to love, my dad would be practice sessions with 40 carts on track each time. And I would love if my dad put me at the back and I do the practice session and the practice wasn't a practice session. For me, it was a race and I would go from 40th and try and get up as many positions as I could before the session ended. And maybe part of that was it. I don't know. Um, but we, I used to do that all the time. And, uh, and I think it's just one of them things. I think overtaking and racecraft is, a, is another area which is tricky, especially it's a different kind of racecraft in Formula One. You're dealing with dirty air and you're dealing with DRS and you're dealing with energy management. There's a lot of things going on. You know, you can catch people off guard by deploying your your battery in different ways to everyone else. There's 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 understanding what the other cars, how they're clipping and you can watch their lights on the back. You know, it's a bit of chess going on. And I enjoy that side of things. I enjoy trying to outsmart um, other other people. Uh, the around the outside thing is, is to me... <laughs> doesn't isn't nothing it's only because they're defending that i have to go around the outside i'd rather be mr around the inside but if if they defend then i go around the outside alex wasn't it was it kimmy around the outside of cops at silverstone was yeah, it? yeah yeah that was oh. a, that was that was oh. a kaiser that was a good one yeah it's a good i enjoyed that one <laughs> yeah yeah i do i do i not but it does go like back it. to karting does it, it does and, and, i think and, it's racecraft and i think yeah. um you need carts to really do that kind of know how to race people i feel like karting is the best form of racecraft when you're a kid and everyone's slipstreaming each other you know you i remember races we had like lines 25 carts within two seconds but that's in a race right it's just a, a snake it's a human snake and um it was all about defending overtaking and if you lost one position you'd always lose five positions because there'll be four carts coming in on you inside Karting is important and starting karting young is that also a thing? I mean, my son is 17 years old. Is it over for him before he's even started? Are you trying to get him into a fine? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but yes. is it too late? Anyone who wants I to think, start at 17 is too late, is it? I think it is too late. Oh, sorry, Nicky's Paddy. actually very impressive. Nicky started pretty late. He started when he was 12, 11, 12. And that's late. That's late. And I think it may even be later, but I think it's 11 and 12. So, uh, my feeling, and I don't know if this is right or not, and maybe some neurologist, psychologist will tell me I'm chatting rubbish, but I feel like when you are young, when you start racing at, you know, I know kids who've been karting since they were four, five, which is ridiculous. I, was, I started, that, was that you? No, I started seven, which is, in, old, in, in them days, is actually old. Was it really? And yeah. seven was illegal. You can't actually cart, you can't go to most tracks when you're seven. So I was karting in a field. Um, my dad was um, dealing my lap times in the field it was a figure of eight and that was it so um, and that was important time you know yeah I feel like it's like riding a bike it needs to feel so natural it has to feel like you're you're at one and and everything is we don't think when we're driving it's all just you can't we can't really explain it to you why we do things it just we just do it you know most probably if we really think about it we could explain it to you but it, it has to feel, you know, like Second daydreaming. Nature. Exactly. And um, mm. and I think if you start too late, you you miss that beginning part where it where it where it 
where it starts to feel like one and, and you start to have to think about what you're doing and that's when it's that's when you're 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 too late that's when it's, it's, it's like it's if you want to be multilingual if you start when you're really young yeah, learning yeah. new languages I you're think, like a sponge so. aren't you and so. if you start I, aged 40 there you go. it's going to be a lot harder isn't it how's your russian yes. how's your thai <laughs> I really hope you're enjoying this chat with Alex. If you are, leave us a rating or a review and tell your friends and followers using the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid. There's still lots more to come from Alex. And once you finish listening to this episode, why not check out a related interview from the Beyond the Grid archive? Use the links in the description for this episode to find my chats with Alex's golf buddies, Lando Norris, Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc. Or what about his Williams teammate, Nicholas Latifi? And if you haven't already, follow F1 Beyond the Grid on your podcast app. That way you'll never miss an episode and you'll be the first to find out who our next guest is. Right, let's get back to Alex. How different do the rivalries become, Alex? So you've been racing so many of these guys yes. since you were in carts, and I'm thinking of Leclerc and people like that. Yes. How different does that rivalry become in Formula One? It's different. I think for me it's different right now because I'm in, I'm, I'm in, in Williams and, and Charles is in a Ferrari and winning races. But I would say that it's no different if you were Max and... Charles now as to when they were kids in karting anyone can win more or less you know there is still equipment that's quicker than others but it is pretty similar when you go towards F1 there's a bit of a difference because you're I mean you're all competitive but you're all in different machinery and there's a little bit of that going on but everyone's competitive I think uh, when you're younger maybe it's a little bit more teeth out you know elbows out kind of thing and in karting, you can obviously push people and, and nothing happens. Whereas in, in racing, you get the uh, you get a front wing change and a bit more going on. So uh, there is a little bit of that. But yeah, the competitiveness, the will to win, that doesn't change. But the French, the fundamental friendship is the same. So and what we see of you guys on Instagram, on the golf course. And yeah, that's it. That's you know, like we, being 10 again. We've been racing against each other since we've been, well, most of us 12, age 12. It's all the way through to, to now. So that's, for most of us, 12, 13 years of racing together. I see them more than I see my family right now. Just the way that we travel so much. And, I mean, maybe it would be a tough 12 years if you hated them and you saw them every day. But uh, fortunately, we, 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 we're friends. And I think people maybe see that in a bad way. Like, why are these guys, you know, friends? Like, it's it should be the olden days when everyone hates each other and um, starts uh, fist fighting each other. Oh, but isn't that refreshing that you I can be friends? I, I like it. And I think that, um, you know, we are genuinely You don't friends. treat each other differently on the track, do you? Uh, yeah. Yeah, we do. Oh, do you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing is, is we are friends. We are, you know, we, we enjoy each other's company and, and we love bantering and, and winding each other up. Once it comes to the racing side, it's kind of like everyone's their own man. And, and it's once the helmet's on, it's like, that's it. Everyone, you park that friendship away. But you still have the respect and you know that when the helmet's off, that you're still friends again. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like a, it's not like a reality TV show where it's not like we take off our helmets and that's it now. I, unf I unfollow you on Instagram and our relationships finish you know we're still friends and and what happens on the track does happen and maybe there is a bit of a 
a text and what, what was that for <laughs> kind of thing but we make up for it you know we're, we're old enough well look who's better at golf <sighs> i reckon you've got that one haven't you okay so this is this is the situation <laughs> carlos is the best by quite a good amount i've heard checo is pretty good but i haven't seen it so i can't tell you for sure lando plays way too much the guy has he's obsessed he doesn't even have that much free time so the fact that he fits it in is is pretty impressive we were we were in monaco last week we were there for five days he he went to the course for four days he landed in melbourne and he was take and i he landed uh, he left a day later than i did i left on sunday night he left on monday he arrives he's done he's done a what's that a 20 odd hour flight he's gone straight to the golf course from the airport straight to straight in he's texting me hey let's play golf i'm like there's limits to to my passion for the sport but he 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 loves it and he's actually to be fair to him he's got really good not to carlos's level but he's really improved and then there's a bit of a gap and i would say that's where i am i mean I'm, I'm i'm just behind can, can we put a number on it in terms of handicap are you, handicap. Are you prepared to divulge that i played the other day i got 95 what's that Oh, I don't know. What's uh, that's is seventy twenty? That's over twenty. That's like twenty one, twenty two. And then what would Carlos be? Roughly? Carlos is a seven. Oh, is he? Yeah, he's not too bad. And Lando is in between fifteen. I'd say. I think I'm being nice to him. Maybe I'm not. I don't know. I'm sure he's going to tell me otherwise. And then there's Charles. <laughs> and Charles, let me tell you, Charles is on a different. His scoring system is unbelievable. He's uh, he's got he's got it from somewhere. I don't know how he's got it, but um, <laughs> he's over there. He's in the trees. He's hit the sh- hit, he's hit the ball backwards. He's on the green. He's four putted. He's and he's got a bogey. <laughs> and you're like, sorry, Charles. <laughs> Hang on a minute. Let me just backtrack a bit and count what you just did. Um, and so there he is, and he's he's <laughs> he's somehow scoring. Similar to me, uh, we, we were playing actually last week, and um, we weren't allowed to be a group of four because of because of the speed of play. So Lando and Charles were were, were playing, and I was with my friend Nick. I just I couldn't believe it because I was I was watching the guy. I was behind him. I was I was I was. We were we were watching the shots they were doing, <laughs> zigzagging his way down zigzagging the fairway, <laughs> warming up his tires. The poor buggy <laughs> must have ran out of battery by the end of it, and. And the score, he comes back, he shouts after he's putted, you know, bogey. And so we were writing it down and I'm just like, there's just no way. The guy's, the guy's. So, so I was like, all right, the last 15 holes, we're, we're away from the clubhouse. We can join back up as a four. And, uh, and funny enough, he wasn't scoring very well. <laughs> just a bad hole, right? <laughs> just a bad, bad, bad three holes, mate. You should have seen the last 15. Do you not find 15. it incredibly frustrating? Um, I mean, I always think to be a good Formula One driver, you're you're all you're a perfectionist. Yes. On the racetrack, I think it actually teaches us patience. It teaches us. Um, I play with my girlfriend. My girlfriend. I bet she's a pro. She's a pro. She she is. So Again, I, I, frustrating. <laughs> she's frustrated at me for how bad I am, <laughs> but she's very calm when she plays, and obviously I'm not calm when I play. I'm kind of chaotic and I'm all over the place and I'm I'm not happy. But then at the same time, I enjoy it. Like it's so different to what we do on track you can't think of a more different sport i mean the ball stays still we're walking to a stationary ball there's not much reaction time in that and it's all about technique and i think i don't know if that's what attracts us 
but it's really nice to be able to just do something so different to what we so so slow paced to what we do and we're not good enough to really get frustrated because actually to be honest I think if we were a little bit better we would be less frustrated because we don't know why the ball's going left and right but it is does your girlfriend give you lessons she does but um you know when you're like mum and dad are, are not happy with you and you you they tell you something and you don't listen because they're your mum and dad and it's like it's the same thing you know when I'm sure you know if you teach your if I teach my sisters how to drive they don't listen to me but they'll listen to the driving instructor who I would like to think is a little bit less talented than I am maybe not maybe he's the next next <laughs> next Lewis Hamilton but I don't believe he is and it's the same in golf <laughs> I mean I'm I'm no good my girlfriend tells me what to do and I and I'm just like it doesn't work my next shot's rubbish what, what you just said to me doesn't doesn't work and she's like, you've got to give it time. He's, that's the correct way. I'm like, I'm not going to waste, <laughs> I'm not going to waste three or four shots to f- fix it. I need results now. So uh, ah, that's the Formula One driver in you. Exactly. I and, need uh, results. And, and there's the other side to it, which is, and it's a fair point by her. She doesn't know where to start. She's like, everything's so wrong <laughs> that where do I even go to improve you? You, you the whole thing's wrong. So, uh, so there's that side too. It's a tough sport. There's no doubt about that. Yes. Yeah. But not as tough as Formula One. And Alex, I know everyone listening to this will be willing you on here at Williams. The vibe is great. You seem really relaxed (laughs) and um, bring home more points. That's the plan. Thank you very much. It's great to have you on the show again. Thanks, Tom. Alex is a gem, isn't he? Not only a brilliant racing driver and an improving golfer, he's about as authentic a man as you'll find. He comes at life head on and tells it as it is. He's the sort of person you'd want driving for you and sitting next to you in the pub. Thanks for your time, Alex. It was great to have you on the show again. And please remember to send in your thoughts and stories about Alex. I love reading them every week and I'll give some of them a shout out next week. Which brings me on to what you sent in after last week's show with the design genius Steve Nichols. Many of you enjoyed that trip down memory lane, I think. Uh, Rachel Cooks sent this in. What a fascinating episode. I loved every minute of it and the chance to listen to many eye-opening details of what it was actually like within the teams instead of always speculating from the outside. I now have a much better understanding of the dynamic relationship between Senna and Prost. Rachel, thanks for sending that in. And yes, the engineers so often provide insight about drivers that they don't give themselves. And what about this from Lydia? Really interesting episode. Culture shock, moving from McLaren to Ferrari. A bit hilarious to listen to, but must have been hellishly frustrating to actually experience. I think moving to any team after that era at McLaren would have been a shock, Lydia. But nowhere was the contrast going to be greater than moving to Ferrari. And what about this from Fernando Ponce Leon? What a delightful conversation. As a Brazilian, Senna will always be our hero. And to listen and learn about how he managed the settings and details of the car from his engineer was heartwarming, to say the least. Thank you so much for this episode. Well, thank you for getting in touch, Fernando. And by the way, you don't have to be Brazilian for Senna to be a hero. I'll leave it there for this week in terms of messages, although I do want to add this before I go. 
There's something new, a mid-season upgrade, if you like, for you to check out. You can now use the links in the description for this episode to find other related interviews from the Beyond the Grid archive, like Alex's Williams teammate Nicholas Latifi or his golf buddies Lando, Carlos and Charles. Look for the related episode links in the episode's description. And why not follow F1 Beyond the Grid on your podcast app so you never miss an episode and check out the latest edition of F1 Nation for behind the scenes race reviews and expert F1 insight. Thanks for listening, everybody. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.